are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Cradle Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Sky. And uh, here to chop up another one. Oh, yeah. Finishing up Hebrews this week. Looking at specifically Hebrews 7 to 13, a high priest of the good things to come. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a, another fun one. Hell yeah. Woo. Um, so how's the week been? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, reading. <laughs> when you say you're reading, I, I just feel like you need to tell the audience how you showed up here today. <laughs> <laughs> you might be better better suited to say. <laughs> you asked me what I wanted to eat. I'm like, I, I what, what's food? I, I can't I think like, of anything. Hey, you want to grab some food? And you're like, oh, am I supposed to eat? Is yeah. that something that's supposed to happen? Yeah. Because I was just reading. <laughs> yeah, I'm a madman. Uh, Got up at like what, five, you said? Went to midnight. Sorry, went to bed around midnight and got up at five. Yeah. So, just crushing it. Trying. We'll see. I know, see do, like the audience one. has to be dying to know. How many how many pages on average do you read prepping for a single podcast episode? Well, that's hard for me to say because sometimes I'm skimming super quickly. Yeah. But if it's a point I'm looking for, I'm actually reading very slowly to see where they put the comma or the and or the you know, how they're trying to create the apologetic flexibility, let's say, yep. um, to basically make Mormonism be whatever they want. So I'm really holding them to their yeah. sentences. So in that case, I'm probably reading slower than average. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if I'm just trying to get through a bunch of stuff, you know, especially these conference talks or something, there's not much there, so you can skim it pretty quick. Uh-huh. That was a non-answer. Yeah. Estimate. Estimate. How many pages? Per episode. Yeah. Uh, it would be in the hundreds. Yeah. That's what I figured. It would be in the hundreds. <laughs> and then some, um, you know, some maybe a little more, some a little less. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's like writing a research paper for each episode. Yeah. Well, Doing your historical homework. Trying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> trying not to get in my own way in terms of trying to, you know, focus for the episode. And yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Yep. Thank uh, the listeners for bearing with me. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun stuff. <clears throat> well, cool. We we don't have, um, I feel like, tons of time today. So I say we just jump right Let's on into it. it Let's and, do it. And uh, hit this one hard because yeah. we've got a couple of big topics coming we do. up again today. <laughs> so um, there's really only two major topics two major sections within the Sunday school curriculum in the LDS come follow me curriculum, which of course is what we've been working through and interacting with as two credal Christians all year. And so uh, what we're looking at today is the lesson for November 6th to the 12th that every LDS ward will be studying together. And that's going to be in Hebrews, as I already mentioned, Hebrews seven to 13. And the two major sections, one is, pretty much on the priesthood and the other is on faith. And yeah. so 
Um, yeah, you're looking huge topics. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> huge. And um, and so we're we're gonna read a lot of the manual today because it actually does give a little more content than many of the lessons do. As you know, if you've been with us, many of the lessons are more of just suggestions of ways to get classroom discussion going. But we do have a little bit of content that we can work through on these ones, and then uh, yeah, we'll dive into each one of these sections one by one and uh, see what we have to say um, and uh, just yeah really let you Skylar just share with us the fruit of your reading it's, on yeah. the priesthood and then on uh, an LDS understanding of faith as well and then we'll interact a bit with a uh, evangelical Christian understanding of Hebrews what do we think Hebrews really is getting at in these different sections and so we'll look forward to jumping in there so um, yeah, we really have uh, at the top of this lesson the typical, uh, you know, encouragement to the teachers. You read through Hebrews seven to thirteen, ponder what the Lord's message was for the Hebrews saints. Um, I do appreciate that there is at least uh, a shadow of the kind of approach that we would take to the scriptures there of pondering the messages given to these original Christians. Um, Yes, please do that. Um, And then it goes on and says, also look for his messages to you and the people you teach. So I don't know if those are supposed to be two separate things. Um, Also (laughs) seems like it's supposed to be two separate things. So because it could not be, it might not be the same message. Yep. Yep. Which again, for us, when we're, dialing into the scriptures, we want to determine the original meaning, and then that meaning applies to our lives as well. So it's not a separate message that we're trying to understand through the reading of the scriptures. We're trying to understand the message that was given to the original saints, and then knowing that that is the objective meaning, apply that to our lives. Um, You get into the invite sharing section, pretty similar stuff to normal there, and then we're into the teach the doctrine section. Really quickly on the invite sharing, Yep, there's just one line that I wanted to draw attention to, and it's an abuse of this Hebrews 10 verse. Yeah. They're supposed to come prepared with verses from these six chapters, right, that help them draw near to God, help them draw near, which, you know, this is an emphasis we've had the whole time that, you know, God comes to us, <laughs> yeah. right? That's the point. If you look at Romans 10, for example, he draws near to us in the preaching of the word. So anyway, really huge mishap there, but of course, very you know, makes sense from the Mormon worldview. Yeah. It's about what we do and even faith is going to become that as we'll see. Yep. Yep. For sure. Um, okay. And then we get into the teach the doctrine and first section here is generally saying that it's covering Hebrews chapter seven, all the way through chapter 10. So it's not highlighting any particular verses per se here, but is more so given an outline of all of it. And here's the subtitle. Ancient and modern ordinances point to Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to read through this before turning it over to you, Skylar. It says, This week's outline in Come Follow Me for Individual and Family suggests searching Hebrews 7 for passages that teach about the Melchizedek priesthood. So here we go. We're going to be focusing on the priesthood. And testify of Jesus Christ. Invite class members to share what they found. Or you could give them time in class to review chapter 7 and find verses that teach this priesthood and testify of the Savior. 
How was Melchizedek like Jesus Christ? How do how how do Melchizedek priesthood ordinances help us come to Christ? Perhaps class members could look for possible answers in gospel topics, Melchizedek priesthood. And then this is where they go on to give actually a little bit more content here. Even though we don't offer animal sacrifices, we do participate in ordinances today that, in a similar way, point our souls to Christ and provide, quote, authorized channels through which the blessings and powers of heaven can flow into our individual lives, end quote. That's David Bednar from a talk, Always Retain, Always Retain a Remission mm-hmm. of Your Sins. <laughs> and that's from uh, May of, of 2016. Perhaps you could explore together how the ancient ordinances described in Hebrews 8 to 10 symbolized the atoning sacrifice of our Savior. For example, what does the blood of bulls and goats represent? Whom does the high priest represent? The video sacrifice and sacrament could help. How have modern ordinances helped us or blessed us and helped point us to Jesus Christ? What can we do to make these ordinances more meaningful and focused on the Savior? All right. I'm just going to turn it right on over to you because that's, yeah. that's, that's the Oof. gist of the content there. So a lot of the focus just on how do we look at Hebrews and start to basically come up with, uh, with the, the reasoning for why we do things the way we do it as far as the Melchizedek <laughs> priesthood sure. goes and the ordinances that are involved in all that. That um, that according to Bednar, uh, these are the authorized channels through which the blessings and powers of heaven can flow into our individual lives. Well, <laughs> yeah. All right, where to even start? And of course, this deserves a whole series of its own. Really quickly, just on the manual itself, notice that they seem to divide, kind of like the also in the you know the at the top of the page. Find verses that teach of this priesthood and testify of the Savior, as if um, there's a divide <laughs> between the two. Um, Christ is one who holds this priesthood. A, a book that I'd love to have the author on sometime. Yep. Uh, the Royal Priest, Psalm 110 in Biblical Theology by uh, our brother Matthew Amadi, who's a pastor here in Utah. He has whole section on this that I'll recommend to the listener on the argument here, but of course the, the, the fig, there's a redemptive historical point that's being made. There's also just a point about the nature of Christ, right? Levitical priests lost their priesthood to death. That's part of the point, which that's going to be very different than the Mormon view of priesthood Mm -hmm. as we're going to see in a second. Whereas the point of milk, the, the permanence and superiority of this priesthood is rooted in the high priest raised from the dead who does not die again, right? So <clears throat> this, uh, let me just read a line from this book. Instead, like Melchizedek in the literary context of Genesis, Jesus became a priest, Jesus in his humanity, I would add, by the power of an indestructible life. For it was testified concerning Melchizedek that he lives, that it was testified concerning Jesus upon his resurrection, that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Unlike the Levites, whose death prevented them from remaining in their office, Jesus, like Melchizedek in the literary context of Genesis, remains a priest forever because he lives forever. So, just a, a little sample for the listener to know. There's a bunch going on here yeah. in this argument that we, unfortunately, because there's so much Mormonism to get to, uh, don't have as much time for. 
But certainly, this is not the way to describe it. You know, find verses that testify this priesthood, because the assumption is that there's people in these wards that hold it, right? Yep. And then and testify of Jesus, who also holds it. Yeah, yeah. Right. He's and, an example of yeah, one who holds yeah. it. And again, right. just to put it very simply, from our from our interpretive viewpoint, we would say that the whole point that the author of Hebrews is making, which, by the way, I'm assuming that they think the author of Hebrews is Paul. Yeah, because yeah. Because they just it, assume it, that it's Paul. Because throughout. Joseph Smith uh, basically is saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, that, it's that's just like, a side note point that I've absolutely. picked up on. So Absolutely. And it's actually, I'm glad you said it, because... Once again, we've noticed how liberal the theology is. Like the most quote-unquote conservative LDS will have liberal theological biases that would make even some of the oldest liberals blush. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, Schopenhauer or whatever, he's not thinking God is embodied, right, uh, on a planet going around the star collab. Like, right, (laughs) he may think of God uh, as this force kind of thing, like the LDS Holy Spirit. But anyway... um, well, there's a few issues where all of a sudden they're going to flip to something that's a little more fundamentalist, um, and that's not always a dig. Uh, I don't know what else to call it, but the KJV onlyism. Yeah, where you're like, why? How? How can this <laughs> church that rejects the Shema and like you know whatever Jesus is my boyfriend kind of stuff and the way they talk uh, be KJV only? And then also on this, the authorship of Paul. It's so interesting that the church history that can't be trusted for anything. They can't get anything right until five minutes ago. Um, they'll all of a sudden be quoting church fathers on this and be like, Oh, everybody, it's Paul. It's mm. Paul. It's Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Richard Lloyd Anderson does that. So yeah, they, yeah. because, because yeah. Joseph Smith will constantly say Paul said, right. Right. Yep. Um, but anyway, just, just simple point um, before I turn it, back over to you to fill some things in. But from our perspective, as we're reading the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is all about showing how all of these Old Testament practices, ordinances, uh, the the things regarding the, the Levitical system, everything, all that is pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus. Yeah. And so Jesus really stands at the center of this reality known as the Christian faith as the one who is the fulfillment of all that yes. the Old Testament anticipated. So we wouldn't read the book of Hebrews and think to ourselves um, in any sense of that sort of, you know, the same way that Jesus did this, we do this sort of thing. No, we would see it as being something that very much centers us in Christ as the the author, perfecter um, of our faith, the one that we we hold on to and cling to for everything. You know, the, he is the initiator of this, uh, of this new and better covenant, and we uh, cling to him as our only hope of salvation. And so um, even our understanding of priesthood and some of the things that get developed in, um, in the, the New Testament, all of that is related to, again, our union with Christ and yep. being in him and he being really the um, final ultimate uh, yep. priest and mm-hmm. his priestly work. And this is the whole, you just can't miss this in Hebrews, that his priestly work is the, the once for all sacrificial work that was needed, that the Old Testament anticipated the need for, and that was completed by him and his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, so that all who trust in him through faith 
uh, receive all the benefits and blessings of, of his priestly work. Right. Um, so it's just a simple, quick outline, you know, just how we're going to read this sort of thing. Right. Like the whole point of bringing up the Melchizedek priesthood is to compare and contrast Jesus as being the one who is the ultimate final high priest. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's, it's of course the assumption is monotheism, the assumption of all these things that Mormonism denies. They take this verse, a high priest of good things to come and make Jesus an example of what they do. I mean, that's every lesson, every all year. For those who are like, well, that was a poorly worded lesson. No, all year, every lesson, not even the cross episode of the garden episode that did not turn Jesus into an example of how you should be mm-hmm. and turn it into a, you know, a coach, you know, yep. a coaching exercise. No, but this is, this is not how Hebrews talks about it. This is the one God in Christ incarnating fully God, fully man to be the fulfillment of, of even, I mean, of all these things to come, and who is now interceding currently. In other words, this is how you fulfill and not destroy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, all the priestly work in shadow that we see in the Old Testament comes to light in the person work of Jesus, the work of which is accomplished, but there's also this ongoing work. Now he's, he's interceding for us. Right. And not only that, the, the ontological difference. How can Hebrews, which of course talks about, you know, not temples made with hands, a text written before the destruction of the temple, already saying in Christ, it's obsolete. Yep. Um, in the flesh of Jesus is the veil of the temple. And if you think of the, the temple as being a place where God's presence is, that in the actual flesh of Jesus that we see as currently now at the right hand of the Father, right, in the heavenly temple, yep. um, that is the veil of the temple. Yep. That's why he can say, you know, show us the Father, how long have you been with me? Mm-hmm. So he, we see uh, not just work of Jesus in fulfilling certain things, like a really important human being, like all gods before him. We see him as the unique man because he's the one God-man, who sums all things in himself and who holds all things in their place. Yep. Yep. Definitely. So instead, and this is why there's such a weird disconnect. I, I, I struggle to imagine. I'm, I'm sure it exists somewhere, unfortunately, but how, you know, even this uh, word ordinance, which it's funny, it's like this aversion to the word sacrament, but they call their uh, equivalent of the Lord's supper, the sacrament. So it's not like <laughs> the whole point of using the word ordinance was to avoid the word sacrament. Right. But they call one of their ordinances the sacrament. So anyway, and by the way, it's it's not sacramental either. Um, he, this is this is so weird to me. How have modern ordinances blessed us and helped us to Jesus Christ? For a generation that remembers hearing that all of the current ordinances are exactly the religion of Adam and has always been here whenever there hasn't been a time of apostasy. That's weird for them to call them modern in my view. Yeah. And then this, uh, which I'm just going to remind people of the Lord's supper episode. What can we do to make these ordinances more meaningful? What do we do to make ordinances meaningful and focused on the savior? In other words, if you even have to ask that question, you're probably in the wrong church. Yeah. Yep. You're probably in the wrong church. Now, churches that get this right, I'm not saying they're all equally right. Mm-hmm. My point is you don't have a chance of being right if that even has to be asked. Yeah, Because the, the, the whole point of the sacrament is God coming to us visibly in the sacrament, yep. saying, I will be here. 
And the fact that you can somehow have an ordinance that's not focused on the Savior. Yeah. Is that possible? In Mormonism, it is. So this is, yeah, I could say more. Of course, you made the atonement point last time. But, I mean, of course they're going to get that wrong. Instead, yeah. it, it, it's an atonement for what? So Jesus could achieve his godhood, you know, according to Richard Lloyd Anderson, their yeah. guy on Paul. That's what that means. So what he can't become a god for you. He can't exalt for you. So ultimately, what does atonement mean? So it's, it's, it's interesting that here we, we see, right, signs and seals, and we make these distinctions where we are assuming the symbol is pointing to a greater reality. Mm -hmm. Whereas for them, symbolism throughout the Bible, and you'll notice this everywhere, if there's a phrase or something that you can, you can say that's metaphor, they turn it into a story time and art hour. Yeah. And they do what they want with it. Mm -hmm. They don't let the authors determine the meaning of the metaphor in helping us get a better glimpse at this great transcendent God. Uh, No, instead it's an opportunity for them to do what they want to make it meaningful to them. And then if you can coat Jesus, you know, paint a coat of Jesus on that, you know, um, you know, just paint on the outside, right? Oh, see, it's focused on the Savior. Um, Well, if it's based on what you do, it's not a sacrament. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Yep. Yep. It's that simple. So um, I've got more to say on the priesthood, but I know we've, we've got to focus on the lectures on faith. But let me just say this. That um, instead of rehashing the map, maybe we'll we'll come back to it. I'm sure priesthood will come up again this year. If not, we have next year. But in looking at, um, we we covered the Aaronic and Melchizedek split. We covered the shift from the emphasis being charismatic authority right into angelic ordination, or you know this idea that the Smith family just has this. Um, authority. In fact, Richard Bushman calls it his occultism, a preparatory priesthood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Richard Bushman calls it that. Um, into, into this idea that God told us. So, you know, that's where we get our authority. It's like divine declaration. By the way, that's that's more of the view of the Book of Mormon. To all of a sudden you need angelic ordination. We pointed out some of the historical issues there. I've got more of the historical issues there. But one thing I want to point out that we haven't covered at all yet is that Specifically on these chapters of Hebrews too, Joseph Smith introduces a third form of priesthood <clears throat> that is not talked about in the manuals. So I sent you a picture of a couple of these quotes. I found, um, I think, four, maybe three, um, in which he specifically says Levitical, Abrahamic, or Melchizedek, and then and then Melchizedek, and he lists them first, second, third. So there's no confusion. Um, he's saying this is it. Levitical or Aaronic, and then Melchizedek. We see that in the divide now, and that's what's in the Gospel Principles Manual. That's what you're going to see in every manual. Mm-hmm. That's what you're going to see in the General Handbook. Um, but what's this patriarchal power? What's this patriarchal priesthood? And this is uh, maybe some glue to hold a few of these things that didn't seem connected throughout the year to pull them together really quick. Um, this is not a priesthood that you get in this world. Um, in fact, um, this was, uh, something that we see as inherited through bloodline, through a a lineal priesthood like Leviticus, uh, without ordination. In other words, even if there is an ordination involved, it's to, um, it's a formality. 
And in fact, this is often used even where um, we see the development of the priesthood that I wish I had more time to get into, but there's a place, for example, where it says without these uh, priesthoods, I think it's DC 84, um, you know, you can't see the face of God. And yet Joseph Smith saw supposedly both gods um, in 1820, which was actually 1824. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, they'll say that he came to this world with this priesthood that enabled this, right? So, uh, and in fact, this was one of the earliest apologetic views. This is not just um, people a couple minutes ago. Orson Pratt um, had this view. Uh, Brigham Young said, Joseph Smith was entitled to the keys of the priesthood according to blood. Um, So this is something you inherit, and it's not of church but of family. And um, D. Michael Quinn has a section on this where he says, quote, Smith was never ordained to this lineal priesthood by the laying on of hands. Later called patriarchal priesthood, this authority existed in him from birth. Hmm. So, so yeah, this is a whole form of priesthood that's not emphasized at all today. And, and that is in part because of a power grab that occurred historically under uh, Spencer W. Kimball. Yeah. So we had. Keep in mind the the patriarch position. You had. Um, we've covered little bits here and there. So I apologize that this whole picture is not here. In fact, write us in if you have a specific question. Write into what is it? Distinctive Christianity at Gmail. Yep. Dot com. Uh, if you ha- have a specific question, I'm just trying to go faster because I got a lot left on faith. But <clears throat> we had an entire a church-wide patriarch that was supposed to pass father to son, and uh, most people, of course. Uh, goes without saying that we'll know Joseph Smith was assassinated mm-hmm. in 1844. Um, what they'll miss is that his brother, who was killed the same day, was the patriarch. So this was a double whammy. We often just focus on the one yep. and then just focus on Hiram as just important to Joseph. No, no, he was important for the church as well yeah. because the patriarch was seen as maybe higher, but at least equal to the Quorum of the Twelve. Yeah. And the first presidency, we don't have time to get into this. That has been a thorn in the side of church authorities from the beginning. Yeah. The first presidency is it. People who think that's obviously the highest quorum of the church. Uh, sorry. It's definitely not that simple. In fact, uh, the patriarch, this position existed before the quorum of the 12, 1833, uh, I believe. And mm-hmm. whereas uh, 1835 is when you have the organization of the quorum of the 12. Yep. And um, this was a position that, uh, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young said would be here forever, forever. And um, so how do you how do you deal with this? Let me just really quick. Uh, Joseph Smith said in 1839, whenever the Church of Christ is established in the earth, there should be a patriarch for the benefit of the posterity of the saints. 1847, Brigham Young said that this position was necessary to keep up the full organization of the church through all time, through all time, through all time. Time, as far as could be, at least the three first presidency, quorum of the 1270s, and patriarch over the whole church, and so that the devil could take no advantage of us. So the devil could take no advantage of us. Well, well, that's interesting, because um, in October 1979, um, you still had uh, a general patriarch of the church. His name was Eldred Smith, descendant of Hiram. Once again, this is a lineal priesthood. So, for example, I love this book I have called Lost Legacy on this issue. Uh, brilliant. In fact, it's written in part by someone who should probably be, <laughs> should have been the patriarch. Um, there's a picture of Joseph F. Smith with his bro- brother, literally his brother from another mother, <laughs> um, at, at the time. And, um, well, this had passed on. And so 
How did they do it? Well, you had the first presidency under Spencer W. Kimball, which was, um, sorry, and Eldon Tanner and Marion G. Romney. Um, call him in, Elder G. Smith, and basically say, we want to release you. And um, making a complicated story less complicated, basically are like, look, um, you, you'll still get your paycheck, don't worry. You can keep your office. And um, in fact, till he died, he still exercises his office, which is weird. Mm-hmm. But we want to release you. He actually is, defends keeping it. He, is, he does not just go along with it. But basically they're like, hey, will you just, you know, submit to the church, right? And um, so he just um, expressed concerns but submitted. So he's there in the General Conference of 1979 when they release him, but they didn't replace him. So he goes and inquires as to what was going on, right? And they just informed him they're not going to replace him. Mm-hmm. Now, this is his family. Yeah. Right? Who's this guy, this Kimball guy? You know, Hebrew C. Kimball uh, was okay with the general patriarch, by the way. That's his ancestor. Who's this guy? That, that's what they did. They did not, this was totally a power grab. This yeah. was absolutely a coup d'etat. <laughs> from Spencer W. Kimball and the like, and they never replaced it. It, it, Get this. Did they announce it? Was it this big deal? Was it this huge thing? No. No. They they just announced in the sustaining of the officers that he was released. No further comment. And in the ensign, no further comment. They just say he's released. And then in the church, uh, in newspaper, the church news, which was an insert to the desert news at the time, um, it just has new na- leaders named, and it, they have this in there. Another personnel change among the general authorities was the announcement that Elder Eldred G. Smith, Patriarch of the Church, is now appointed Patriarch Emeritus to, to the Church. He's released honorably from the patriarchal duties since no, in most parts of the world, stakes now have their own patriarchs who provide the necessary blessings. Now, the only one that say anything in the public square that we could see is Salt Lake Tribune that just noted that it's kind of weird, and that's it. There has literally, not since, been a statement. And if someone knows of one, I'd like to hear it. But according to this uh, academic book, The Lost Legacy, hmm. there at least at the, at the time of the publication of this book, there has never, ever been an explanation as to the end of this position. Uh, quote, um, Indeed, it was through the announcement of Eldred's emeritus status that the office was retired. No official announcement of the abolition of the office was ever made. Mm. And that, that was a priest, a priesthood office, pa- t- the patriarchal <laughs> priesthood office, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's interesting, just uh, referencing back to the apostasy episode. Yeah. You know, and how we were talking about how the new narrative that's going around right now is that it doesn't, it doesn't matter if uh, the apostasy narrative changes because the fixed thing that was restored was the priesthood power and right. the priesthood keys, you know? And, right. and so there, there's just an example of how a, a priesthood office that was apparently restored yep. uh, even can go away yep. and, and just everybody disappear. just turns, turns their eyes. And it sounds, it sounds like the, the way that they try to, justified in the explanation of that book is that it's fulfilled in some sense and the, yeah, the, the local stake patriarchs and but it's a lineal now, priesthood yeah, yeah. It, that's what the, that's the problem so yeah, yeah and, and uh, this should be said really quickly too just on this section with ordinances is this is another thing people just so the evangelicals listening really 
There are so many ordinances. Mm-hmm. It's not just baptism and what they call the sacrament, which is a, just a, I'm going to call it a parody of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, <laughs> there are in everything. I mean, in fact, there was recently added an ordinance uh, in 1976, dedication of graves. Mm-hmm is an ordinance. Yeah. So the, I mean, I, I should have counted the list, but I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. I mean, there's gotta be 15, 20 yeah. different ordinances. Yep. And that's, that's even, do you include the temple ordinances as well? Or is it its own thing? And you know, I, um, anyway, so, but you know, it's just, sometimes it's just added. It'll be a practice, common practice. It'll just be added. Sometimes it's a common practice and it'll just go away. So washing of feet used to be an ordinance gone baptism, but for the restoration of health used to be an ordinance gone. Whereas, um, on just the dedication of graves, for example, first it's it, it, the official position was not an ordinance doesn't need to be a priesthood holder. Then it was not an ordinance, but it's recommended you have a priesthood holder. Then it was not an ordinance, but priesthood holder, required for it. And then all of a sudden it's a Melchizedek priesthood ordinance in 1976, the dedication of graves. Yeah. And all of these ordinances really are functionally things that must be done on a routine and regular basis in order to obtain uh, and maintain, I guess, remission of sins and the particular powers that come from heaven as a mm-hmm. result of performing these different ordinances. And that's kind of drawing off of Bedner's quote there in the material. Um, so, so what they're doing with this lesson is they're basically saying, why don't you look at the different ordinances, so to speak, that were done in the old Testament and think about how we don't do those ordinances anymore, but the ordinances that we do, ought to point us to Christ in the same way that the ordinances of the Old Testament pointed us to Christ. So so again, this this really is what we've been pointing out um all, all along is is they they do still have a law that is necessary to obey in order to merit righteousness and works and power and to gain power and to ensure remission of your own sins. It's based on um their effort, their works, their performance mm-hmm. of the ordinances and that's actually the exact opposite of what the author in Hebrews is trying to get at. His point, oh, yeah. his point is that those ordinances in the Old Testament were to point to how Christ fulfills everything. He finishes mm-hmm. the work. He does it all um, so that we now rest in him. He is our Sabbath rest. Um, he is the one that we rely on and trust in. And so I think before we transition into the faith chapter... I think it'd be worthwhile to just read all of chapter 10 of Hebrews okay, and uh, just let this speak for itself. Um, Just listen to the words. And I think you'll see that we're not just making this up when we Mm -hmm. say that the focus of Hebrews is to show how Christ does it all. He does everything. So, so the, the reason this connects into where we're going with faith is because you've got the famous faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. And what I want listeners to see is that as you follow the way that this argument is building, the whole point is that Christ is the object of our faith. He's the one that we lay hold of and we trust in as being the means by which we uh, we have salvation. He is our very salvation. And so the faith chapter, we're, and we're going to talk about this, faith just isn't just a, a subjective uh, you know, feeling or a power or something like that. What, what matters in faith is the object, that you're yeah. trusting in the right person to save you. Right. And, uh, and that means you, you cannot and must not trust in yourself mm-hmm. in your own performance, because the whole point in Hebrews is trust Christ. He's the one who performed everything necessary for your salvation. So listen, just starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, 
For since the law has but a shadow of the, of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having, been, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Does that make sense? <laughs> why, why would they have to keep bringing offerings if their offerings were accomplishing the purpose right. uh, which they were intended to accomplish? Well, right. it's because they're not actually bringing about the, yeah. the completion of this forgiveness right. that they're, they long for. They're pointing to the one who can. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. So what was the purpose of those sacrifices? Remember, you're not good enough, and yep. you need someone to save you. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to your, to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest daily stands at his surface service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, his work was complete. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, listen to this. This is Hebrews 10 verse 14. I just, if every LDS person would lay hold of this great gospel truth. For by a single offering, that is the offering of Christ's body, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. You've been forgiven. There's no more offering that you can make or should make in order to cleanse yourself. You've been forgiven according to the offering of Christ. So if you're doing ordinances to maintain the remission of sins, you're not trusting in the gospel that Hebrews is proclaiming. So you need to trust this Christ who has offered once for all his body for the full, complete forgiveness of sins. There's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he offered for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle and, and with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plunderings of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may re- receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So again, the idea is we are the ones who don't shrink back. We're the ones who have faith. And what is the significance of that faith? It's not in the power of the faith within you or the Mm-mm. strength of it or you know having a, enough of your own will to maintain a faith. No, it's remembering the object of your faith is the God who is faithful, the one who has accomplished everything necessary by sending his own son. So we keep holding on to him. That's, that's what faith is. And that's where chapter 11 picks up. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then it goes on from there. Um, so let me just fill this out really quickly from the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum, and I'm going to turn it back over to you, Skylar. Okay. Um, so they, on this section on faith, um, they the subtitle is Faith Requires trusting in God's promises. And they say to help class members understand Paul's teachings about faith, you could begin asking them by asking them uh, to think about how they would describe faith in one sentence and then uh, read and discuss a as a class the definition that Paul gives in Hebrews 11, chapter 1. And uh, then I'm going to skip on down here to the second section because they just start turning the conversation towards ha- having a conversation about faithful examples of faithful people and right. things like that. One, one really quickly, they on the verse, they actually... At the bottom, too, they're like, Joseph Smith translation of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Right, yeah, which I didn't look that up. I, I yeah, know. so... But yeah, they're definitely trying they, to... Well, he it. adds the word assurance of things okay. hoped for. And, yeah. But but notice they'll say Paul, but then, once again, it's going to be Joseph Smith, actually. And similar in the next section, it'll be Paul, so-called Paul, but it's actually Jeffrey Holland's statement. Yep, yep. So here we go. I'm going to read this whole next little section here. The counsel to the Hebrew saints who were tempted to draw back from their faith, can be valuable to class members who may be struggling with their testimonies. It could also help those who are trying to help loved ones in a crisis of faith. To discover this counsel, class members could read Hebrews 10, 34-38, and 
Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's statement and additional resources. We'll read that in a little bit. Why are we sometimes tempted to cast away our confidence in the Lord and his gospel? What can we do to build and maintain faith and confidence to receive God's promise? <laughs> the videos, Good Things to Come, and a, a High Priest of Good Things to Come could supplement the discussion. Now listen to this quote from Jeffrey R. Holland. He says, Sure, it is tough before you join the church, while you are trying to join and after you have joined. That is the way it has always been, Paul says. But don't draw back. Don't panic and retreat. Don't lose your confidence. Don't forget how you once felt. Don't distrust the experience, experience you, you had. had. <laughs> With any major decision, there are cautions and considerations to make. But once there has been an illumination, illumination, beware the temptation to retreat from a good thing. A good thing. Notice it doesn't say the good thing. Yep. If it was right when you prayed about it and trusted it and lived for it, it is right now. <laughs> Don't give up when the pressure mounts. Face your doubts, master your fears, cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Stay the course and see the beauty of life unfold for you. There's, so, there's Mormon epistemology right there. Yeah, what definitely. you felt, what you experienced, you interpret as illumination. Notice it's just an impersonal illumination, uh, Gnostic alert, to it is right. Yep. So if it was right when you prayed about it and trusted it and lived for it, it is right now. Brendan, I got a question for you. Yep. So when I prayed about the book of Abraham and I felt it was right and I had experiences about it being right and I felt really illuminated by it, does it make the book of Abraham true? Mm. According to Mormon epistemology? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? It's yeah. It's like... Man, I, I, uh, how, how many people felt so right about supporting Tim Ballard? Yeah. Till oh, yeah. two minutes ago. By the way, he's been on my radar since 2012. Not to brag, but I'm going to brag about this one. Since his publication of his first book in 2012, he's been on my radar. Well, yep. I wasn't waiting till 2019 or whatever. Yep. Um, okay. But how many people felt they were helping kids, felt they were this, right? Feel dedicated, love their country, they think, or whatever. Is it true? Yeah. I mean, the, the heart, uh, according to a biblical worldview, is prone towards being led into deception. Yes. And the heart should not be trusted. And yeah. that's why we need, we do need new hearts. But the enlightening that happens, according to the Bible, is an enlightening uh, unto the objective scriptures that have been written um, to trust the words of mm -hmm. God. So anywhere that you look at what a biblical knowledge, biblical wisdom, biblical um, enlightening of the eyes of the heart and things like that. It's always related to coming to understand God through the words that he has provided through the scriptures that he has given to his people. And so for us, the enlightenment is according to a, a true and objective knowledge, a true and objective standard um, that's been written down that's outside of us and it's not according to some sort of internal reasoning or knowing uh, or feeling or anything of that nature so for us really humility is a willingness to submit to an external truth that is true whether or not it feels good to you and uh and so that's yeah that's a major distinction between our worldview and a mormon worldview for sure and, and notice um as well, even their treatment of Scripture. This is ironic, right? Where it starts into the Jeffrey Har Holland quote, it says, referring to Hebrews 10. Notice, not exegeting, not interpreting, 
or preaching. They don't preach. They give talks, and I agree. They don't preach. And then underneath that, right, you have improving our teaching. Go to the scriptures first on the same column that it says go to your feelings, your experiences, and your illumination. Yep. Yeah, what what if the scriptures contradict your feelings? Right. Well, I mean, I right. I mean, it's just I mean, really though, like <laughs> what what if the scriptures have the Shema in yeah. them? Yeah, that's a standard work, right? But in fact, they say this, um, go to the scriptures first, notice first, don't stay there is how I would say that's how they can be consistent. But even Holland above didn't get the message. He didn't even go to the scriptures at all. Yeah. He just did some words that sound similar. The scripture should be the primary source for your study and preparation. Can you believe that? Yeah. The primary. But once again, they'll say, well, it's just primary. They're secondary and tertiary. By secondary and tertiary, they mean more important. Mm-hmm. Their temple doesn't, uh, it teaches the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And um, of course, they're going to lean there. That's any true LDS will actually trust in the temple more than anything else. Yep. So then it'll say the words of modern prophets can complement. Oh, there you go. The standard works. And then, did you see the citation after how ironic? Mm-hmm. See a manual we wrote for evidence that you... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is, this column right here. You want to, you want Mormon epistemology? Right here. Yep. You got this column. That's yep. what you need. All right, so, man. Le- okay. Lectures on faith. Standard works. What time is it? <laughs> how much time I got? Uh, I got a lot here. You got about 20 minutes. 20 minutes. I better hurry. Okay. So um, it, when it says talk about the standard works, whatever, I, and then when I was studying David Ridges, his uh, course book on this, um, he's citing the lectures on faith, of course, Hebrews 11. And it's like, you know, this, this is a time to bring this up, the lectures on faith. This might be very understudied by the Christians out there for those who are interested in studying Mormonism. This is an important text. But it's also maybe one of the more confusing texts. Um, but the lectures on faith, let me give some background. First off, what is it? It's a series of seven lectures. Okay, se- seven lectures. In fact, the first through five lectures will also have catechisms at the end, which is very unusual for anything Mormon, right? Um, and it was designed originally for missionaries to memorize and teach. Okay. And it's systematically arranged. If I were just to kind of go through the seven really quick lecture one, faith defined two, how mankind knows about God three and four are like the character and attributes of God, which it'll still use words like necessary and unchanging, which is interesting. Five, the nature of God or the Godhead really. Um, but you'll see, and they're talking about the Godhead, this, this issue. Six, the law of sacrifice. Seven, the fruits or effects of faith, which we brought this seventh one up quite a bit. Um, you know, this is leading to uh, perspective, power, and eventually perfection, according to one scholar. So, um, traditionally, it was seen as Smith writing it and Rigdon delivering it, but, of course, that's questioned, especially since they took them out, as I'm going to get to. Um there's been a lot of dispute over who wrote it, and you had two different forms of analysis. Um, in 1977, it concluded that uh, lectures one and seven were Rigdon, Sidney Rigdon, who was a big deal in early Mormonism. Um, Joseph Smith wrote five. That's going to be telling coming up. And then the remaining were both. Then in 1980, you had another study of style using computers, and it concluded that one, three, four, six, and seven were rigged in. Smith was two, and then it added W.W. Phelps' five. Uh, but either way, what, whatever 
whatever, Smith oversaw the printing, the publication, and was twice involved in the preparation of these lectures. So what's the context of, of them? Uh, we just got through the Mormon crusade into Missouri, this violent crusade that most LDS will not know about because they only know the victim's story. They don't know the perpetrator story of Mormons in Missouri. Uh, they'll know the extermination order, but they won't know that it's actually a Mormon militia that attacked Missourians first. But anyway, you have this war where Jesus is saying, we're, uh, or sorry, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Back the up. same thing in LDSism. Jesus is Joseph Smith, really. Uh, no, Joseph Smith is saying, okay, we're going to go. We're going to conquer this area. This is where the Garden of Eden was. This is where some you know white Native American temple used to be, whatever. We're going to conquer this place for us. We're going to start the new Jerusalem. We're going to build a temple, and then Jesus is going to come. And, of course, none of that happened. So so what do, what do people do? Do they wake up and leave? No, they stay in and go deeper. That's how human psychology is. It's kind of weird, um, but it's true. There's a book called When Prophecy Fails that shows this about another group. So they go, they're in Kirtland, Ohio. They've just been rocked, right? Well, the Kirtland High Council appoints a committee, uh, including, I believe, the whole First Presidency, but it was Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, Frederick G. Williams, all rock stars in, early, in the early Mormon church, right? <laughs> and they are to publish a work, quote, arranged from the items of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And uh, the first section is the doctrine of the church. That's the quote. The doctrine of the church were these seven lectures. The second were the covenants and commandments of the Lord. That's the DNC as we know it now. Mm-hmm. So DNC is doctrine and covenants. The doctrine of the doctrine and covenants was this. Yep. Okay. In um, all the, the evidence we have of it, including the preface and all that, it makes no distinction in the inspirational quality between the doctrine and the covenants. That's something that's important if you're into, more, into dealing with Mormon apologetics. They're going to try to because they took them out. So they got to be like, well, no, the inspired part we kept. Well, we're going to see if that holds up. It doesn't. Um, so these lectures are in course, really, on theology and doctrine, are for the School of Elders, Kirtland, Ohio, 1834-1835. Keep in mind, the Book of Mormon's 1830. So this is a great snapshot. So we have the view of God in the Book of Mormon. We have the view of God in these lectures, and then we have the view of God coming in the, in the Nauvoo period. That's going to be key later, if I don't run out of time here. Um, so in 1835, the preface, right? In fact, the page of the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, carefully selected from the revelations of God. It has important doctrine of salvation. Quote, it contains, in short, the leading items of the religion which we have professed to believe. It's signed by all members of the committee, and then it's endeavored to present, through, though in few words, the faith and principles of this society as a body. And in fact, in the first lecture, it says, this is, quote, to unfold the understanding of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Yet, 86, laters, 86 years later, sorry, 1921, they're going to take it out. And uh, in the word of one scholar, Van Wagner, his rock star in Mormon history, I think, um, he said it's neither controversial nor particularly public. And the only other case of this happening where something was put in the standard works and taken out was the, we already covered uh, the DNC, the first, the original DNC 101 that forbade polygamy that was giving cover to the actual polygamy that was happening. Mm-hmm. That um, they, in uh, 1876 edition, they just, without a vote, by the way, there was no vote on this. This is going to be key from the general church membership. They took that out and replaced it with DNC 132, declaring celestial marriage and the plurality of wives as required. 
Okay. Now, was this ever questioned in the intervening years? Uh, Orson Pratt in 1879, I wish I could go into this more, but basically he brings it up. John Taylor responded this way. John Taylor is the president of the church at the time. I believe this was a first presidency letter, but this is in April of 1879. Says, quote, the lectures on faith were published with the sanction and approval of the prophet Joseph Smith. And we do not feel, feel, that it is desirable to make any alteration in that regard. Okay. Well, then what happened? 1921, first presidency selects. Elder George F. Richards to chair a committee to prepare a new edition of the Book of Mormon. And then this committee is going to turn into one that deals with the, the DNC, a later edition of the DNC. Um, this committee includes just some highlights. Eventually, uh, they're going to add some people in June, and then the chair is going to become Talmadge. James E. Talmadge, John A. Woodso, Joseph Fielding Smith. Pretty big deal. Okay. And um, I'm just to skip ahead a little bit. Um, they're going to decide the deletion lectures on faith. And what's weird is we have, you know, in, even in the letter, Talmadge does mention in a letter to uh, another apostle, George Albert Smith, that there's a lot of stylistic changes. And then there's one line where he talks about contains many errors by way of omission. But not, it's not like, oh, we're going to take out the doctrine of the DNC mm-hmm. um, in that letter. All of a sudden, it's published without it. Now, there is one introductory explanation in that 1921 edition that says, quote, um, there's a full quote I I don't have time to read, but they say that they were never presented nor accepted by the church as being otherwise. Okay. I just want some people to recognize this. This is the apologetic out for basically everything. Yeah. So the interpreters, the so-called conservatives, they're going to use this when it comes to all the doctrines they don't like. But guess what? The progressives get to use it too. The progressives in the LDS church, all the LGBT promoting people are using this on family, the proclamation of the world. Yeah. Because it was never presented as a vote. Yep. So here it is. That's what I get. This is what the benefit of being a Mormon is you get to make it whatever you want it to be. Yeah. So not all revelations are uh, given to the church for sustaining. And indeed, interestingly enough, the original chair, that George Richards guy, he mentions in a letter that there were other 20 other revelations, some of which he wanted to include because they weren't in the original covenants part of the doc, uh, DNC. Mm-hmm. But notice, guess what they leave, by the way? They leave DNC 132. Just interesting. Yeah. They don't touch, they don't say, hey, there's an issue where it's command of polygamy. But here, here's how, if you read the first line of the, of the you know, official declaration one, it says, to whom it may concern. Mm-hmm. So I guess we get to decide whether it applies to us. So, <clears throat> but we're going to excommunicate polygamists. Yeah. Well, if they do it in an unapproved way, Nelson and Oaks could be sealed more than woman. That's fine. So here's the thing. DNC 68.4 says, quote, whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. Mm. DNC. And yet, sections like 28.13 say all things must be done in order by common consent of the church. So it, that's that here's the problem, right? Once again, what is Mormon doctrine? We have uh, someone asking uh, a first presidency member an apostle George Q Cannon, he's come up a few times big deal in the Utah period, the Brigham Young period of Mormonism. He's asked and I don't know if I have time to read this whole thing, but it, it's uh, this is in a church magazine in response to a question about common consent consent. And it's an article called on revelation. And he says, quote, it seems nonsensical that the prophet of God should submit to such a test as common consent and not deem the revelations he received as authentic until the approval of different forms of the church. 
whatsoever, right? I mean, basically, it does not make it valid or not. By the way, um, McConkie in 1966 agrees, right? He says, revelations given of God through prophets are not subject to an approving or sustaining vote of the people in order to establish their validity. Now, when it comes to publishing, maybe, by covenant, right, you agree to these, but listen to this. There is nothing permitting the church to choose which of the revelations will be binding upon it, either by a vote or the people or by other means, which kind of undoes half of the two exceptions he made. Because if it's by covenant and it's binding, then how is that? Okay. So here you have two apostles. Well, guess what? We have two presidents of the church going the other way, uh, both, both in the most public forums imaginable. So we have a testimony of Wilford Woodruff, right? Legal deposition before the Western District of the Missouri U.S. Supreme, or sorry, U.S. Circuit Court in uh, March 1892. He says, quote, in this legal document, the church has a right to reject or approve of revelations and any man independent of the action of the church. Okay, just, I'm just including part of it. But basically, yeah, they have a right to reject uh, or approve of revelations and any man independent the action of the church. Yep. He goes on, but I'll, I'll come to the next one. President Joseph F. Smith, he's called uh, before a Senate committee in March 1904, the one where he is, uh, if, if one will recall, he's literally asked in this, um, have you received any revelation yourself? And he answered, no, sir. So he was part of the trend from revelation, living oracles to living prophets based on inspiration. And now it's just impressions. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, he's the last one to do his job. If you'll notice the last section of the DNC comes from him. So yeah. to his credit, he actually did his job as a president of the church. Unlike these guys, um, <laughs> he's asked in that, in the same Reed Smoot hearings, right? I will say this, Mr. Chairman, that this is president of the LDS church and son of Hiram Smith. I will say this, Mr. Chairman, that no revelation given through the head of the church ever becomes binding and authoritative upon the members of the church until it has been presented to the church and accepted by them. Here's a senator actually steps in and says, asks him, wait, so the quote, the church in conference may say to you, Joseph F. Smith, the first president of the church, it, he, of course, he doesn't understand what he, it's the president of the church, right, but anyway, right, yeah. just to show that this, the senator is still kind of learning, but he's saying, okay, the church can say to you, we deny that God has told you us, told us this. We deny that God has told you to tell us this. Sorry, that's the quote. Smith, they can say that if they choose, and it is not binding upon them as members of the church until they accept it. So we have two presidents of the church that verify the principle of common consent, and yet we have two very prominent uh, elders, members of the Quorum of the Twelve, that say, not at all. Meanwhile, there's no agreed process of decanonization. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for decanonizing are totally bunk. So yeah. let me jump to one. We had a, a master's thesis actually get an interview with Joseph F. Smith. Oh, sorry, Joseph Fielding Smith, the son of Joseph F. Smith. By the way, it's Fielding both times, but we distinguish him by the F or the Fielding. Right. And he gave four reasons. Uh, and I just want to jump through these and then wrap it up. Um, the first was they were not received as revelations by the prophet Joseph Smith. That should be seen as bunk. And in fact, uh, what of DNC 134, which is included in every edition of the DNC, no distinction made then either. That's not true. It's just bogus. Uh, two was that they are only instructions relative to the general subject of faith. They are explanations of this principle, but not doctrine. That is just uh, even Richard Van Wagner says historically erroneous. Um, this was received in 1835 as, quote, the doctrine of the Church of, of, LD, of the Latter-day Saints. 
Um, second, it is labeled covenants and commandments. Um, and if you look through the DNC, there's tons of instructions and declarations. In fact, there's, there's some things that are called items of instruction. There's reports of visions. Somehow the articles of faith are included, right? There's answers to questions, letters. All right. It's, all right. Three, they are not complete. And by the way, this guy is going to become a president of the church. Mm-hmm. But anyway, three, they are not complete as to their teachings regarding the Godhead. And my, my point is, what of the Book of Mormon? Yeah. Then why don't you change the Book of Mormon? And uh, man, we're not going to have time for this, but in the fifth lecture of faith, um, it says that the Godhead has two personages. The Father is a tabernacle of spirit, and the Son is a tabernacle of flesh. Let's see. Per- sorry, ta- personage of tabernacle. So the Father's personage of spirit, the Son is a personage of tabernacle. Um, and then the Holy Spirit is just the shared or, quote, same mind, quote, same mind of both. Okay, so clearly not Mormon LDS theology, but neither is the modalism of Abinadi right. in other places. So, in fact, uh, people don't realize this. It's not until 1841, 21 years, it should really be 16 years or 15 or 17 years, after the first vision, that Joseph Smith said, quote, there is no other God in heaven but that God who has flesh and bones. And then in 1843, that's when we get DNC 130 that says the Father and the Son— have bodies of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, and that the Holy Ghost has is has not those, but is a personage of spirit. And of course, the idea, and we went into this last time, is he also get a body. <clears throat> so notice, the Father has a personage of spirit in the lecture five, and he has a, f- a personage of flesh and bones in 1843. And yet, in the King Follett Discourse, which Joseph Smith said, this is, this is it. This is, he went for all the marbles in this uh, discourse, said, if what I'm saying is true here, I'm a true prophet. If what I'm saying here is wrong, I'm a false prophet. He says he's been teaching this, um, see, uh, I think it was 14 years. And yet in 1835, under his direction, we have this teaching on the Godhead. And we ha- I have a series here I don't have time to get into, but anyway, we have a BYU scholar doubling down and saying, no, it's actually on the part of the readers that we're all confused. It's actually not confusing. So, <laughs> and yet, in spite of all of this, you know what Bruce R. McConkie said in 1972? 1972? He said, this is uh, the spirit of inspiration. It's eternal scripture. It is true. So, um, I've got... 80 gazillion more things to say here, but this is just (laughs) another example of what is Mormon doctrine. And the fact that they will take this thing out and still quote it as if authoritative shows that, you know, even if they add the family proclamation of the world through common consent, does it really matter? Because ultimately there's no foundation to even their doctrine of doctrine. Yeah. So let me just land this and then we got to be done. So, um, Take everything that Skylar just laid out very beautifully. Um, and then remember the words of Holland that we read in the additional researches here. Sure, sure it is tough before you join the church, while you're trying to join, and after you have joined. That is the way it's always been, Paul says. But don't draw back. Don't panic and retreat. Don't lose your confidence. Don't forget how you once felt. Don't distrust the experience that you had. So remember, this is Holland commenting apparently on what Paul's idea of faith is. And really the way that he's applying this is don't draw back from the church, no matter what you hear or learn, no matter how it might contradict good reason. Um, Skyler just laid out beautifully the changing nature, uh, once again, of LDS doctrine, of LDS belief. 
And I just want to try to ground any listeners that we may have who might just think, well, I'm just going to give up on any and all faith because, you know, if, if I have been so duped by the LDS church, what keeps me from being duped by anything else? Well, the difference is where Paul or the author of Hebrews, I should say, not knowing if it's Paul or not, the difference is where he grounds our faith. He doesn't ground it in the words of men in, in an organization that has changed a million times. He grounds it in the unchanging nature of God. So in chapter six of Hebrews, you've got really where um, Paul is grounding or the author of Hebrews is grounding this faith. He says, starting in verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable nature of the, or the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So all of uh, Hebrews is building on the fact that God is a God who is unchanging in his in his uh, promises. He keeps his promises. He keeps his oaths. Um, and he has kept it because he sent Jesus who came and accomplished everything that had been foretold in the old covenant for us so that Jesus now becomes the anchor of our faith. He becomes the one that we hold on to. He is the great object of our faith. So when we place our faith in something, what we're saying is the object of the faith is what matters far more than the strength of it or whatever else you may say. It's important that you have the right God. It's important that you have the true Jesus. It's important that you're laying hold of him and have faith in him uh, far more than, you know, any of this stuff that we've gone through that we see in the LDS faith that is not reliable and is not unchanging, but is subject to constant change. That's not our God. Our God does not lie. Our God does not make mistakes. Um, he is He is true. And so you can trust him. And that's what we would appeal for you to do today. Any Last one sentence word. Just, yes. Uh, this is Machen. Even very imperfect and very weak faith is sufficient for salvation. Salvation does not depend upon the strength of our faith, but it depends upon Christ. When you want assurance of salvation, think not about your faith, but about the person who is the object of your faith. It is not a force that does something, but it is a channel by which something is received. Amen. All right. Next week, we're going to be looking at the Epistle of James. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. We will see you then.